Hello, I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi, and you are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Today we have with us Dr. Dreon M. Birch, also known as Dr. Dre. He's a practicing physician and teaching faculty member at McGee Women's Hospital of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He is also a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Dr. Dre, welcome to ReachMD. Hey, thank you, Dr. Seti. It's great to be here. So excited. Thank you for being here as well. So today we're going to talk about transgender health. Dr. Dre, can you tell us what you think of as the definition of transgender health? Well, this is huge now, especially in healthcare and also in the media. You know, Laverne Cox was on Time Magazine. You know, she's been nominated for an Emmy. Orange is the New Black. A lot of my patients love that show, so it's huge. Doctors ask me this all the time. What's really the difference, especially the medical students? So let's go over three terms I like to give everyone. The first one is called sex. The second one is gender identity. And the third one is gender expression. So sex, as you know, is basically... A person is designated like when you're born, you're born like male, female, or intersex based off of your anatomy. Gender identity is like how you identify yourself, like if you think you're a male or a female. And gender expression is like how you present yourself socially, like if you're masculinized, if you're feminized. So basically transgender just means there's some type of mix match between gender and sex. So gender identity or expression and sex, some type of mix match. So one word I do not like is transsexual. And a lot of docs and medical students say this. I just feel like the word transsexual just gives you kind of like this like sexual connotation because a lot of medical professionals, they're really like focused on the surgeries that the patients have had. So I don't use the word transsexual at all with anyone. So we can take it even further with like trans man versus trans woman. So a trans man is someone who was born a female and identifies as a male. I see a lot of those patients in my office. And we have a trans woman, which is born a male, and now identifies as a female. And we can take it even further, Dr. Seti, and talk about sexual orientation. So I have trans men and trans women in the office, but that has nothing to do with their sexual orientation. So sexual orientation means who they're attracted to. So I have trans men who are attracted to women, who date women. I consider them straight. And I have trans men who are attracted to and date male, so I consider them gay. So you always need to know their sex, what they were born into, gender, what they consider themselves to be, and also their sexual orientation to really give you a full picture of a transgender patient. Those are great things to know, Dr. Dre. That was a great clarification of all the terms. So in your practice, what are some of the common health issues found in this trans population? So they have a lot of health issues as well as social issues. So I'll kind of touch on that as well. Cardiovascular disease is huge, especially patients that are on hormones that aren't being monitored by physicians. Substance abuse, a lot of the patients are on the streets, so, you know, heroin, cocaine, X, alcohol is a big deal, as well as STIs, especially HIV. The HIV rate is really, really high in the transgender population. I think the highest is actually in Atlanta, in the Atlanta population, the male to female population. I think 63% of them are associated with HIV, which is extremely, extremely high. Cancer is always a big one. To date, there's only been about three cases of breast cancer ever noted in a transgender population, but obviously we really don't know because there's not a lot of studies that are done on this population, as well as like endometrial ovarian cancer and prostate cancer. You can't forget that, prostate cancer. Physical abuse is huge. You probably see in the media, you know, once a week there's a transgender person that was killed. 
um, do physical abuse. Being homeless is another big one. You know, they can't find jobs. If they're in transition, a lot of times they can't find jobs, so they end up homeless, going to shelters. A lot of shelters are ran by, like, religious organizations. They don't know where to put them. They're usually kicked out on the street from the shelters. And, you know, on the street, of course, they're using drugs, they're having sex, and then all of a sudden you get HIV. So that's like the full picture of how it works. Obesity, you know, the hormones can make you gain weight. I have a lot of issues with some of the patients going to pumping parties. Have you heard of pumping parties, Dr. Seti? I have not, no. Pumping party is like where people like pump like silicone in their bodies, like illegally. Mm. So you never know like what they're pumping into their bodies. You know, these substances can like, you know, tire flats is one of them that they pump. They can travel through the lungs and cause a PE. You know, they can die. You, you just never know what they're pumping. So I have issues with the pumping parties. Depression is huge, of course, as well as suicide is high on the list for the transgender patients. That's quite a list, and that's very important issues for the trans population, definitely. What about the question I think a lot of physicians always have concerning the hormones that they take? Do you prescribe those, or do you monitor them? Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, it's easy as an OBGYN. I already give hormones birth control anyway, so it's not a big deal for me to give um, estrogen and testosterone to a patient. But I actually was trained through this organization called WPATH, W-P-A-T-H. It's the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. And I also received some training in prescribing hormones at this uh, conference. It's called the Philadelphia Transgender Health Conference. So it occurs every June. And you actually get CME for going. So, I mean, I think you get like maybe 40 hours of CME, which is great. And you get to learn how to prescribe hormones to the transgender population. So for me, I start hormones. I use the guidelines from WPATH. So I start hormones when they're at least 18 years old. And they're able to know, like, the knowledge and, like, social things and medical risks of taking hormones. They also need to have a diagnosis of GID. You've probably heard this. This is a psych diagnosis. It's gender identity disorder, or I call it gender dysphoria. So basically that just means, like, if they're not treated medically, that something, some type of harm can happen to them. They can be depressed. They can be suicidal, or they can, like, die from not being treated. So they have to have some type of, like, physical, like, distress or functional impairment to be able to treat the patient. Also, there's some data that shows that real-life experiences for at least three months or psychotherapy for at least three months is also helpful in diagnosing this uh, gender identity disorder. But it's usually a psych diagnosis. They have this diagnosis even before they come to me, the specialist, the OBGYN, the trans health provider from their psych doctor. Now, they usually come to me and it says, uh, it's usually a letter that they get from their psych doctor, hey, I've been diagnosed with gender identity disorder, and that gives me the okay to treat the patient with hormones. But before I treat the patient with hormones, I always give consent. But I give consent for birth control as well in the office. So, <laughs> you know, there's risk of just basic birth control. So I give consent for that as well. And before I start hormones, another thing that's important to do is to talk to the patient about fertility. As you know, like if you give a patient hormones, of course it can affect like the ovaries as well as the testes. So you want to make sure, because a lot of them are young, they're like, 20, 21, 22, they have not, like, even thought about having a family, but you want to make sure, do you want to have a family because we need to thank your sperm, we need to harvest your eggs before we start these hormones. For hormones, the trans men, of course, they're going to be on testosterone. The thing that's important here to know is that there's certain permanent 
effects of testosterone. So a deeper divorce is permanent. Male pattern baldness is permanent. Clitoral enlargement is permanent, as well as some of the facial and body hair is permanent. So you have to make sure that they really want to go through the transition before you prescribe hormones to those patients. So, of course, you don't want to give testosterone to anyone that's pregnant. You always have to do a pregnancy test on uh, patients. I've been fooled a couple times in the office. You know, you don't want to give testosterone to anyone with, like, coronary artery disease or with, like, high blood pressure. So the testosterone that I actually prescribe in the office is androgel, and they use it once a day to the skin. So you can use 50, 75, or 100 milligrams. So labs that you order for a trans man, so let's go do that. So urine ACG, of course, right? You want to do a urine ACG. I also order H&H because you can have polycythemia. I also check for liver function tests. Lipids are huge. You always want to check a fasting lipids because testosterone can actually make your lipids increase. Serum testosterone, you want to check that, and that's a total level of testosterone and fasting blood sugar. So, you know, testosterone can almost make you a diabetic, so you have to be careful with that. So always monitor the blood pressure and the weight at every visit for the transgender patient. And the level of testosterone you really want to target is about 500 for the trans male. For trans women, just remember this, women need extra, okay? So you have two drugs you want to give them, so estrogen plus an anti-androgen like spiratolactone. Gynomastia is a permanent benefit of being on estrogen. So contraindications to estrogen, you have to rule that out before you give the patient anything. The coronary artery disease, breast cancer, some studies say that. If they've had DVTs or blood clots in their lungs, liver disease, like strokes, you don't want to give this patient estrogen. I actually use the patch, estradiol patch, 0.1 milligrams every uh, three to seven days for the patient. So spiratolactone, the reason why that's important, it's really going to play importance if they have their testes because you need to block the testosterone from the testes. The spiratolactone actually softens like the facial hair for the trans woman. But you can't give it to patients that have any kind of like kidney problems or if they have a high potassium or if they're on any other kind of high blood pressure medication that's like potassium sparing. So you don't want to give it to those patients. So you can use spiratolactone. I give it about 50 milligrams twice a day for those patients. For the trans woman, you want to do the same thing. You want to check fasting, blood sugars, fasting lipids. The only thing you want to add is potassium and renal function and testosterone. So you're never going to order estrogen in the patient, the trans woman or the trans man. You're always going to order testosterone, okay? So testosterone for the trans man is going to be around 500. For the trans woman, it's going to be around less than 50 because you're blocking it, okay? So you're looking at the normal female levels for testosterone is about 50. As well, for the trans woman, you want to monitor blood pressure and weight. So how often do you see these patients back when, you're, when they're on hormones? Do you see them every month, every two months? Well, initially when they come in, they just get like a history and physical, just general history and physical. And I just talk about my program and I prescribe hormones and they sign consents. I don't give them hormones at the initial visit. I order everything else that I would do for a history and physical. And then they follow up within like three weeks after they get the labs done, and then we start prescribing hormones, and then I make them come back every three months. And what about the surgeries involved? Do you partake in those as well? or I don't do total bottom surgery. Well, let me just tell you the difference between like bottom. Have you heard about the surgeries, top and bottom surgery? Briefly, but that would be a great review to do that. In the LGBTQI community, there's all these terms, top versus bottom. But for a top, of course, it means like breast on, breast off, 
bottom, it means like reconstructive surgery or hysterectomy for the bottom surgery. So I do a lot of bottom surgery for the trans male because I start with the hysterectomy. So generally, most people get like top surgery first, so they get the mastectomy or they get breast implant silicone injections or like facial feminization, like Botox and fillers for like a trans woman, you know, to feminize the face. Bottom surgery for the trans man usually starts with a hysterectomy. You know, I remove the uterus and the cervix, especially I remove the cervix and the uterus. And then the ovaries, if I take them out or not, really is the debatable kind of thing. And I use, you know, because their ovaries still have benefit, right? Because they still have, like, testosterone. They still have, you know, estrogen for, like, osteoporosis prevention. So they still have some benefits. So I always kind of, like, fight with the patients if I want to take the ovaries or not. Younger patients, I leave the ovaries in. Some older patients, like over 40, 50, you know, I may take the ovaries out. And when I do take the ovaries out, they can be on a lesser dose of the hormones as well. So that's why they really want the ovaries out, so they can decrease their dose of T, testosterone. So for the trans male, you know, reconstructive surgery, they can have something called mitotoplasty, and that just means the clitoris being released with the urethroplasty, and they make the scrotum, they take out the vagina, and the phalloplasty, that just means like basically making a penis from a skin flap. So usually the skin flap is from like the forearm. So before the trans woman, you know, you have to remove the penis, you have to remove the, you have to castrate, remove the testes. You can make the vagina using the scrotal tissue, and you have to reposition the urethra, and you can make the labia using the scrotal tissue as well. The clitoris is actually made from, like, the head of the glands penis, basically. That's where the clitoris is made from. Most people start with top surgery, and then they go to minimal bottom surgery. They don't usually do them all together. Like, for example, the trans woman, like a vaginoplasty and labioplasty, that can be done about six months apart. If you get it done together, it's called a vulvoplasty. But people take their time getting various surgeries done because, you know, they're expensive as well. So there's stages. There's stages that they have to go through, and they have to completely heal from one stage before going to another. How long does it take for them to get the full transformation if they wanted that? It all depends. So some patients who want everything done like quickly, they can probably get it done within three months. So they can have their top surgery, heal from that, and then go right into their bottom surgery and have it completely done. But it's a healing process, you know, six to eight weeks to heal from having these surgeries done because they're huge surgeries. And also they're, they're financially, they pay out of pocket for these surgeries. Is that right? Well, some insurance companies do cover. For example, like, you know, I do hysterectomies, so I can always get hysterectomies covered because a lot of my patients are always having like abnormal bleeding, you know, they generally have normal, abnormal pathologies, always some fibroids somewhere, or chronic pelvic pain. So I usually can get the hysterectomy covered, but the rest of the bottom surgery is definitely cosmetic. So generally it can cost up to $25,000. So that's why a lot of patients don't get it all at the same time. They do a little bit at a time. Or they go to, like, there's certain places that are really popular, like Bangkok, Thailand. I just came from there. You know, they do a lot of bottom surgery there for the transgender population. It's huge there. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi. I'm speaking with Dr. Drayon M. Birch on transgender health. Dr. Dre, can you talk a little bit about screening? How do you screen for different types of diseases in this population? I always tell the nurses in our office, whatever they have, we need to check it, okay? So <laughs> for a trans male, if they still have their breast tissue, you still need to do like a mammogram. If they have their cervix, you need to screen them using a pap smear. There are also some guidelines out of New York that says to do anal pap smears for patients who are um, HIV positive. For the trans woman, 
Same thing, appropriate screening for, like, breast as well as prostate cancer. A little trick I want to tell all the doctors out there, if you have a patient that's a trans woman and they have a vagina, the way you want to check for the prostate is going to be in the vagina posteriorly. So that's where you're going to find it. So you're not going to put your finger through the rectum to find the prostate. You're going to put your finger in the vagina to find the prostate. So that's a good tip to know. Also, anal patterns for them if they're HIV positive. Now, Opinion varies regarding, like, the need for pap smears in the population for a trans woman. But if the cervix is made out of the glands penis, yes, you need to do a pap smear for the patient. Those are great tips. And what are some resources for training if a physician wants to learn more about transgender health? I think you commented on a couple conferences that you went to. Can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, there's some big powerhouses for transgender health. One of them is the Finway Health Institute. That's at Harvard Really good protocols there. They have a really good system there to tackle the transgender patient. Also, UCSF has a really good program there. They have a Center of Excellence for Transgender Health. The Philadelphia Transgender Health Conference, which I spoke about, that's out of Thomas Jefferson University out of Philadelphia. Also, WPATH, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. So WPATH is unique for me because they actually, I send a lot of trans patients to that website because they actually have a find a provider button, like a little tab. So you just put in your zip code, and you can find all of the doctors or the behavioral health specialists that deal with transgender population. So I think it's great. Yeah, that's a great resource. And what about some tips to make your office more trans-friendly? Before you come into my office, there's a non-discrimination policy there. That's very important for trans people to see. It, it puts them at ease. And, you know, I actually train my staff how to deal with the trans patient. So always refer to them by name and always use their preferred pronoun. So even if you can't remember the preferred pronoun, he or she, refer to them by name, and that should be fine. Your questionnaires in the office, ask how the patients identify themselves. That's important. Magazines, I have like the Time magazine of Laverne Cox. She's transgender on my magazine stand. That's important for the trans patient to see. There's other magazines you can order as well. Frock is one of them, F-R-O-C-K. Girl Talk is one, and Original Plumbing is another transgender magazine. Unisex bathrooms, I think that's huge. I also have like transgender symbols in my bathroom. And you know, I always tell my medical students this, never ask anyone about their genitals unless it pertains to their care. Because I have patients that just come in just to ask questions it has nothing to do with them being transgender, so I never, like, bring that up. Those are all such good points. Make sure you go to my website at Dr. Dre, that's D-R-A-I dot com, if you have any further questions. That's Dr. Dre, that's D-R-A-I dot com. Thank you, Dr. Dre, so much for sharing your insights on transgender health. That was a great review, and I'm sure a lot of other healthcare professionals will benefit from this talk. Thank you. It was fun. See you soon, guys. You have been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast and others in this series. Thank you for listening.